Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Well, the intent was not to have two law enforcement-related podcasts in a row, but uh, here we are. My guest today is a friend of mine of almost 30 years, who I met when we worked as bouncers at nightclubs a few doors down from each other uh, while we were both college students. Like me, Ted is a lifelong metalhead and a connoisseur of fine craft beers. Most important to this episode is that he is a lieutenant with the United States Capitol Police, who, along with our brothers and sisters in blue, engaged in hours-long hand-to-hand combat with insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. It wasn't that long ago we thought we'd have to wait until he retired to do this interview, but here we are, and uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Ted Hopkins to the Square Peg Podcast. Good morning, Ted. Hey, thanks, Larry. Good morning. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're able to do this. Um, how did you end up as kind of the de facto uh, public information officer for your department with regards to the, this historical attempt at, at these atrocities? Yeah, it was never my intent to get into all this, but uh, I just sort of got got frustrated with the the voices that were out there, kind of self-appointed spokespeople that um, really were uh, seemed intent on on playing the victim uh, thing. And um, obviously, you know, it was a tough day. There's no no questioning that it was a, it was a really bad day. But you know, the department afterwards had to deal with all manner of the the aftermath. Uh, to include, you know, sort of feeling this collective uh, PTSD sort of thing. Um, but people got sick of hearing what victims they were. And, and so I kind of got to talking to some officers. And I was like, all right, that, that's enough of that. They, they need to hear the, the more positive glass-half-full perspective because they did an awesome job under uh, tremendous uh, difficulty and, you know, really overwhelming circumstances. And, you know, they need to be reassured of that because, you know, going on TV and crying isn't helping anyone. Yeah, everybody knows it was bad. You could see it. Uh, well, I guess some people have made up their mind it wasn't that bad, but we'll get into that. But, um, uh, you know, they, I keep telling these guys, you know, you guys were overwhelmed. You didn't expect what happened to you. And you got your jobs done. And uh, it's it's just unheard of that a, a capital uh, building of a nation would fall one day and then, be back in session later that day, and that's a huge win. And and nobody, none of the, none of our uh, protectees were injured. Uh, they all came back to do their jobs later that day. So yeah, I ended up just sort of wanting to to get that message out. And um, well, my my department turns out liked liked me doing it. So uh, I, they kind of gave me permission to to talk to folks a little bit here and there. But you know, again, you know, some of these guys they, they seem to have made it there. Well, I would say their second job, but it's turned into kind of their first job for for most of them at this point to go and talk to the media. And I, I have no intent of doing that. I, I I'm a cop, and and you know, occasionally I'll talk to folks and and, and everything. But um, yeah, my job is being a cop, so I'm not I'm not really interested in all the 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 fanfare that seems to have come with uh, them going on TV and crying. So I guess that's the, my roundabout way of saying I I just got sick of hearing the the crying narrative and wanted to change it. Well, you uh, you know, we talked a couple months ago, not too long after you gave your first interview, and I believe I saw something on WJLA Channel Seven, which is the ABC affiliate there in Washington D.C. But you also gave an uh, you gave an interview, and actually, that may have been they may have aired the interview you gave to actually ABC News, right? Right. And who was it that you who interviewed you from ABC News? 
Well, oh, I can't even remember because the, the way they set that up, our, our PIO asked me to do five. It was basically five interviews, one after the other, with um, the, the, you know the four major networks, and I think CNN was the other. And it was interesting to me that you know I, I've had a bit of a frustration with my interactions with the media at times where they seem to only want to hear the victim narrative, and so when I start talking about you know looking at it as a win it's almost as though that's that's not what they want to focus on because that's maybe that's not they don't see that as selling newspapers as you know and I of course i don't mean actual newspaper is that still a thing but um <laughs> i think maybe uh, for our parents yeah um get fire started but um yeah it's uh the, of those five interviews i only saw abc actually use what anything that i gave them and um and i thought they did a really good job of the interview because not only did they kind of Get, get my point. Um, they put on their website, I think, like the raw, the raw interview footage, which was like you know a good eight minutes or so of of me talking, and um, I thought that was cool because then people could see you know, every interview they they kind of edit, of course, it's, it's to be expected. Um, but you know, if folks wanted to see the you know unfiltered version, they, they could see that. So I, I really liked the way they did it. But um, yeah, it's it's been kind of a recurring motif that they kind of pick and choose the stuff they want to use if they're interested and. I get it. That's the way it works. But you know, you know, as long as as long as some folks are hearing what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, coming up on one thing, I did want to point out. I think Ted, you understand that uh, this is probably this this podcast is one of the only uh, places in my life where I, we don't do politics. So we we stay away from that. You know, for 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 reasons some obvious and some not. You know, this is going to be a discussion where for for obvious reasons you need to avoid. Uh, still, you know, still you still work for the Capitol Police and. Um, you know, you're speaking. We're, we're not hiding the fact of who you work for. Um, you know, I've, I've been a little bit. Obviously, I've I've tried to keep my podcast life uh, separate from from my professional life to to some degree. But um, we're, we're gonna we we understand that we're gonna brush up against some things that that could be kind of uh, kind of straddle the line uh, of what we can and can't do. And you know, by all means, you know, let me know if that's something things you can't talk about but you did bring something up and you know you and i have known each other almost 30 years i, I know which way you lean ideologically and you know which way i lean and you know one of the first things i noticed is you know you, you made me think of something when you talked about there was only one one of the of the five major networks you interviewed with uh actually aired the part or or, or were, were interested in the part that, that didn't fit their what, what the, the message they wanted to get out and i remember looking at you know the 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 cable news network that I watch mostly that night and the night after. And I, you know, I was struck by the fact that, you know, people who uh, I saw those nights gushing about the bravery of the police officers uh, and, um, and, and, and showing all kinds of to empathy and, uh, and sympathy for the, so the, some of the ones who were injured, um, never seen them do that before at, at similar, you know, similar, you know, civil unrest incidents, if you will. Uh, which I thought was interesting, and and then the people who obviously say that they support us all the time were not quite as supportive. So it, it is interesting. Everybody has their agenda, but you know, you started your career in 2002 after a stint in the military. But before that, uh, you were a student at the American University uh, in Tenley Town, uh, Northwest DC, where you double majored in philosophy and justice. Uh, now, of course, you were very clear—not criminal justice, but justice. Uh, did you know what your career goals were when you were going to American? Um, well, I think at that age you you, you have a vague idea, perhaps, but uh, you know, I guess we, you never really know what's in store for you. So, yeah, I mean, I, towards the end of my college 
stint, I uh, wanted to go into federal law enforcement, um, but it happened at that time, like almost all the federal law enforcement agencies had hiring freezes on, which is how I sort of ended up reassessing and trying to figure out what to do next, and then ended up in the military for a little while, and um, yeah, then it sort of ended up with the Capitol Police, which, uh, um, you know, it's, it is a federal agency, it's just, uh, you know, really much more focused in one spot and everything, so yeah, I mean, I guess I had some idea that you know that, that this vague notion of of uh, I guess the cliche of you know wanting to do some good within the community and 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 all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, kind of, life kind of takes you where it wants to at sometimes. So uh, um, yeah, here we are. Well, I would imagine you probably don't know anybody else that you went to school with an American who's a law enforcement officer. Uh, we could do a whole episode on that, and I've dealt with that a lot. You know, I do feel like, um, you know, my degree was in history and, and I was talking to a, a professor of mine one time and, you know, I was kind of hemming and hawing about having to write this long research paper. And he said, hey, look, look, you want to be a cop, right? And I said, yeah. He said, no, you want to be a detective one day, right? And I said, yeah, probably. He said, well, look, you know, think of it this way. Doing academic research and conducting a criminal investigation are very, very similar, almost the same thing. And, you know, almost, you know, 25 years later, um, 13 years now as a detective, I can tell you he could not have been more, you know, spot on. Um, now, I've never had any desire to do any kind of graduate work in history, uh, especially, but really any kind of graduate level work. But I know if I did, I would be a hell of a lot better for it because I have done, you know, the criminal investigations I've done. Do you feel like the critical thinking skills that you develop majoring in philosophy and justice uh, have had a really direct impact uh, uh, on on how you on how you do how you do your job, how you've investigated crime, how you've planned uh, operations. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I kind of tell people like college. You, you don't really go to college necessarily to learn your career. You you it's sort of this segue between you know this happy life at, at home uh, and and being sheltered by your parents into going into the real world. And it, it's not it's not life at home and it's not the real world. It's somewhere in between. So you kind of go there to learn how to learn how to be on your own a little bit and learn how to think. Um, so, you know, when I tell people who are off to college, you know, you're really going there to learn how to think for yourself. And, uh, if you don't get that out of college, then you somehow messed up. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's one of the things I, I was trying to get out of it was, you know, just, you got, you got to learn those critical thinking skills and, you know, <laughs> to a certain extent, you know, they're, there seems to be, you know, we're starting to see some of the kids that, that come now who, um, you know, communication skills seem to be a little different too, because just simply because of the medium that they're, they're used to communicating. And like, obviously when we went to college, there was no such thing as texting. Uh, and now it's, you know, some folks are more comfortable texting and you really need communication skills in law enforcement because of, you know, again, there, there are so many times where you're confronted with situations that you need to learn how to talk to different people, you know, uh, people who are mentally ill, all these sorts of things. And, you know, you need to learn how to navigate all those things, both, you know, how to think your way through situations and also, how, you know, the, these critical communication skills. So anyway, yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you know, wanting to get into federal law enforcement and Capitol Police being federal law enforcement, albeit, you know, very centered in one very small geographic area. And it's a, it's an actual police department with that does that, that theoretically does everyday police uh, procedures and, and, and activities as opposed to some of the other alphabet soup you know, agencies. Now you, you did your training uh, at the federal law enforcement training center, FLETC in Glencoe, Georgia, right? Yep. Now I would imagine because uh, of the nature and there are other law enforcement agencies that attend the, ex the, the same Academy you go to. 
um, I would imagine that even though it's not, at least for most of uh, your uniform personnel, not the focus of your everyday work, you still had to go through training uh, like I did and, and basically every other police officer in the world on things like making a traffic stop, investigating DWI, a burglary, domestic violence. Am, am I tracking right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's it's a full-service police department. Um, it, the only thing we don't have is homicide uh, investigations. The Metropolitan Police would uh, handle that, the D.C. Police. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we have absolutely everything, uh, you know, from bomb squad to SWAT team to investigators, threats, um, intel, pretty much everything. So there are a lot of specialties, but, yes, you're, you're still, even if you're standing on a post, you still need to have those basic cop skills, and um, uh, and those are perishable skills. And, and and so you need to, you know, not not only go and learn all the you know basic skills, but it's important to kind of revisit them from time to time because you know we do have a focused patrol division and and all this. It, uh, but uh, you know you, you don't know what you're encounter- going to encounter on a day to day basis, so you you definitely need those skills. Right, and and you know, I would imagine, and please correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine, unlike a city or a county, you know, police department, I would imagine the number of times you've actually investigated domestic violence incident or taken a burglary call uh, or something like that, probably very few and far between. Am I tracking right? Yeah, it's um, it, well. It is less common than your average police department would uh, encounter, but we do have residences and things that are near us um, that sort of overlap with MPD's territory. Uh, so we do occasionally respond to things, if, uh, especially if we have what we call a, a B1, a burglary, which would be a, a burglary where the residents are home. So more like a possibly a home invasion type situation. We'll, we'll definitely go to those. Um, domestic stuff, you know, you got to keep in mind that uh, we have a, a, a different uh, different set of stakeholders, if you were. Uh, whereas, you know, because we have the members of Congress, we have all their staff, we have the visitors, and we have just you know your your regular people coming and going. So it's it's a really diverse group of folks that we uh, sort of look after, and we do get the occasional. You know, sometimes we get a, a tourist in an argument that that's actually a domestic. Uh, so it's rare that we'd actually walk into one in somebody's house. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's because uh, people come from all different countries and cultures and things. And some some cultures, it's more okay to take a hand to uh, their wife or something, and we occasionally encounter that. So. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, it's it's less common than than your average police department would uh, encounter. Now, you you um, the containment emergency response team or CERT uh, look seems to me if I remember correctly, probably the first half of your career. I know you were doing a lot of that. Uh, there was lots of travel, lots of training. Um, you know, I remember. You know, when when you worked at Sports Fans and I worked at Winston's, Winston's was almost on the corner of Thirty Third and M Street, and you know, that first year, 94, 95, I remember standing on the door, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. And, you know, 33rd Street was a one-way going up the hill. And I remember fairly frequently uh, seeing Secretary of State Madeleine Albright drive by in her limousine, you know, on her way home from work, I'm assuming, with, with some sort of security detail. And if I'm not mistaken, that's Department of State who does provide that. But um, you, got, you provided, uh, and, and the CERT team at the Capitol Police provides that type of uh service and, and security detail for members of, of Congress going abroad. Am I right? Uh, so it was basically, it's a full service uh, or a full-time 
SWAT team uh, for all intents and purposes. So, you know, your your average uh, police department also has, uh, you know, their their SWAT team um, is more like on a recall or they do regular patrol duties or whatever, and then uh, you know, sort of gather for some sort of tactical situation. Whereas we were, uh, that was our job was was tactical response for the hill. So yes, we uh, did motorcades um, for all visiting dignitaries. So they would. Basically, when they came onto the hill and left the hill, we would pick them up and then uh, take them until they were out of our area of responsibility. Um, we did occasionally uh, travel with the whoever the Speaker of the House happened to be. Um, we did so. Yeah, it was a lot of motorcade duty, uh, a lot of tactical response type stuff. Um, occasionally serving warrants, uh, things like that. But um, since since leaving, they've actually managed to take on a few more responsibilities, do some more travel traveling and things so we were kind of in a constant battle for um getting more responsibility because you know we ran into this problem where a lot of times the department wasn't really taking an interest in what our capabilities were and um and so didn't use us to our full potential plus you know you have the occasional concerns of you know the members of congress and whoever like uh, the, the word optics always comes up so you know it's you know, these these guys wearing black with their scary guns and equipment and Velcro and all this. So it's, uh, yeah, it was it was a bit frustrating at times to try and get to, you know, do more. Um, but uh, my understanding is because I'm still friends with a lot of those guys, you know, they, they've actually gotten to pick up some more stuff. So uh, it was it was an interesting gig. I seem to remember uh, you you uh, traveling to uh, you know Israel at least once and. I just assumed, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you're like me, uh, uh, a big fan of the craft beers, and I know you love Belgians. Uh, I, I I loved Belgians for many years. Um, I know you spent some time there. I just always assumed that you kind of went through there on work-related stuff and took a liking, or how did that all work out? Yeah, no, I. So my my two most expensive hobbies are are travel and 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 expensive rare uh, beers. Um, so, uh, occasionally I get to combine them and it's funny because I always sort of half joke that, you know, beer people are cool. You know, they're not those snooty wine people, you know, the beer people are, uh, it's, I've made a whole bunch of friends just because I like beer and I've gotten to be friends with some of the brewers. So every time I go over to Belgium, you know, I end up hanging out with, you know, friends that are in the brewing industry and all this sort of thing. And, um, I love history. So, uh, yeah, if I could combine all those things and Belgium really is, uh, for a tiny country, it's got so much to offer. So I absolutely love going there. And um, but in general, just you know, travel. I've got like a, I think a lot of people a list of places that I still need to hit up. And and uh, of course, the my favorites I love to return to. So um, probably my my two favorite countries to continue to return to would be Belgium and Italy. So um, well, I'm I'm a little bit envious. I've I've never been. I haven't been to Europe. But uh, I want to get a little bit more focused here now. November and December of 2020. I think we're all watching the news. Whatever network it is that you watch. Uh, and we're aware of the shit show that was known as the, you know, quote, stop the steal and everything that went along with it. Uh, and, you know, what point are the United States Capitol Police officers given official intel briefs on kind of stuff that was brewing, the possibilities, the fears? Um, can you kind of take me back to that time and what you remember about it? Yeah, we, you know, we we deal with so many demonstrations that um, it's pretty much routine. And. You know, there were several demonstrations leading up that uh, were were very routine. And so there was no, um, I mean, we had no inkling that, that the, the one that actually took place on January 6th was going to be any different. Um, there was no special briefing or anything. And in fact, 
you know, leading up to that week, actually, uh, in the days prior, um, we had stood up our CDU, the, the civil disturbance unit, uh, we, that was stood up for the week uh, as a precaution um, because I guess we, we, we figured there was some, you know, it seemed like the numbers were going to be bigger and we always sort of like to try to be prepared uh, for just in case anything does happen. Um, but honestly, it, like even, even during the Black Lives Matter protests, which got really nasty down at the White House, whenever they came down to us, um, we had no issues with them. So, and a lot of that is, uh, I mean, we're just, we're, we're actually really good at, at dealing with protests in general because we, um, we, well, for one, we deal with a lot of them. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. I can't even tell you how many protests I've been involved in and we're good at de-escalating. We're good at communicating. Like you know, when, if a protest rolls up and we see it's a pretty large group, we generally just kind of go up and say, Hey, you know, who's in charge of the group? Uh, I'd like to just have a chat about, you know, what, what do you intend to do? What are your plans? Do you plan any civil disobedience? Um, you know, just start a conversation. And a lot of times they're actually taken aback that we don't just roll up and start telling them what to do and everything. It's, you know, it's a conversation. And this is really helpful in establishing rapport and keeping things peaceful. And so uh, up to that point, we, we hadn't really had any issues and uh, didn't, didn't have any reason that I was aware of or anybody was aware of, to my knowledge, to expect that this would be any different. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, you know, look, it's your job, and that's what you do, and so I'll, you know, I, I believe you. I, I kind of think that, you know, there is a different, and again, I we've got to be careful about to stay away, stay away from politics, but I think that, you know, there is a difference between Antifa and the kind of the BLM crowd and the the folks that, that tend to align themselves with the people who were, were there on January 6th, and that, you know, the, the, the latter are tend to be armed. Um, whereas you know, our friends on the left are less likely uh, to be so. Um, I'm, I'm certainly glad that you know they didn't come at least make their way to you with their 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 heavy heavy weapons and armory. But um, you know you did mention a civil disturbance unit. Um, it is really interesting, and I will tell you, in my almost 25 years, I've you know had tons of training. I don't think I've ever had any real formal training on dealing with civil unrest. And I know that, uh, you know, my very first job out of the academy for just less than a year, I worked at a large state university police department. I was actually issued a riot helmet and I believe a shield of some sort. And I know that for the two years I spent on the SWAT team at my current department, um, shit, 20, 2004, 2006, uh, I know that one of the things that was listed on our, you know, what we were in charge of or what we were responsible for was responding to civil unrest. Now, you take away the fact that we've got a large state university here in town. We're a semi-rural sheriff's department. It's not like there's going to be a whole lot of times when there's a bunch of people all together. Um, but interestingly enough, um, you began in 2020 uh, your assignment as a liaison uh, with the National Guard. Uh, that was a little bit fortuitous, no? Well, actually, no, that, that came um, after they brought, up, brought the National Guard up. Um, the, so... <laughs> When, when uh, everything sort of, when the dust settled, as it were, and the National Guard all of a sudden were there, I ended up just taking on a whole bunch of responsibilities, and one of them was, you know, dealing with the Guard. But, you know, we'd never, the last time I'd seen the Guard used on the Hill was in the um, aftermath of the um, September 11th attacks, where they were uh, brought up to supplement, because what happened after that was they created a bunch of new posts, and um, barricaded streets and things like that, and they didn't have the manpower to cover it, so they would supplement with National Guard. Now, bringing in the National Guard for any event 
uh, beforehand was absolutely unprecedented. And, um, you know, so they, they talk about, all right, well, I mean, and we'll probably get into this more, but the, the intel being critical, you know, even even if we'd, we'd thought that something was going to happen, bringing in the National Guard ahead of time had never been done. And so I'm thinking, all right, let's say let's say we believe them. And, and we when they say because we hear all the time people saying, oh, we're going to take the Capitol. It's just it's it's almost cliche at this point. We laugh about it. And people, oh, we're going to take the Capitol. Oh, are you now? And so but let's say this time we believe them and, and we do. It's still nobody had ever brought in the National Guard before an event. So let's say we do that, though. And we, we, we bring in the National Guard and we bring in all these other agencies and things like that beforehand. And we set up, you know, this enormous perimeter with you know, uh, people in camouflage and this and that. And then they roll up and they go, well, you know, uh, I guess that ruins that plan. We, we won't be doing that. And then they turn around and they leave. You know, what happens now is people don't understand deterrence. So they look at that and they go, well, that was overkill. We brought in the National Guard for nothing. They didn't even do anything. <laughs> so, you know, there's always that battle of, of you know, uh, w- what's the right amount. <laughs> so anyway. So January 6, 2021, you're, you're still a sergeant. You've been promoted to lieutenant already. No, I was a lieutenant. I was actually um, the commander of the uh, House Division uh, Section 3, which is, uh, so there, there's a capital division. In, in, within the Uniformed Services Bureau, There's they kind of have it divided between the capital division, which is the capital building itself, and immediately outside, uh, the House Division, which is the House Office Buildings, and the Senate Division, Senate Office Buildings, and then you have uh, the Library Division, which is the three Library Congress Buildings. Um, so I was a commander on the House Division, and actually, as I started to say, we were um, we had CDU stood up for most of the week, so I actually had a, a command of a CDU um, platoon uh, earlier in the week, but rotated out on the day of the actual riot, and so was coming in to handle routine stuff. Um, and so when I was as I was arriving for work was when things really started going south. They had, they had discovered, I couldn't even find a place to, to park because my normal place to park was actually blocked off because of the two pipe bombs. People, people forget that somebody set, you know, two pipe bombs outside the, uh, RNC and DNC headquarters. Um, and that really took away a bunch of manpower. So, cause you know, you have to create a perimeter, you have to investigate, uh, block, you know, roads and things. So I, <laughs> I, I encountered that, and you know that was my first inkling that that today was a little bit different because I couldn't even. I, I ended up parking nearly a mile away, and then when I, I called my captain to um, tell him that I was, you know, having to come in from further out, you know, he he tells me like, hey, you know, they, they just breached the Capitol, <laughs> and and so at that point I told him, all right, just uh, close every post you can and and send me as many officers as you free up. Uh, I'm on my way in. I'm going to take them, uh, and we're going to go and take back the capital. And that's sort of how my day began. Now, when you do, you wear do you wear any kind of uh, uniform to work, or do you change out when you get to the to the station? <laughs> yeah, I I was basically wearing my uniform pants and just sort of an undershirt, and of course a jacket. And uh, I I broke into a run at that point, uh, and. Uh, I, I was so eager to get in there because now I'm, I'm getting pissed off. I mean, breach the Capitol. I, I mean, that hadn't happened since the British did it in 1814. Um, so I was, I was really getting pissed off. And so it occurred to me, well, for, my first inclination was just to dive right into the fight and not bother with putting on the rest of the uniform. But then I thought, uh, it, it's going to be a mess when I get in there. So I, I might need those bars. So I ran uh, into my office real quick through my vest shirt and uh belt on and then uh went and 
picked up the what, what officers we could scrounge up and and you know dove into the fight. So yeah, it was. I actually had that uh, internal debate, like, should I even bother throwing the uniform on? And I, I was glad I, I did, even though it you know, took an extra couple of minutes, but it was definitely the right call. Well, now, now you mentioned throwing on your duty belt. Does every officer, uh, every, every uniform officer at your department carry the same, same tools on his duty belt? Does everybody carry the same less lethal? I mean, a taser, OC, baton, a uh, couple sets of handcuffs, or is it kind of more up to... I know that, you know, Jesus, I haven't worn a uniform on my daily duty since 2010, but um, I know that after a while, once we started carrying tasers, and I'm a big guy with a big waist, I can I got a lot of room to fit a lot of tools. I think I, I got to the point where I even stopped carrying a baton because I thought to myself, "What the hell do I need three forms of less lethal?" You know, um, what's the what's the get up? Is there some some sort of uniformity, for lack of a better term? Are you required to have a certain number of less lethal on your belt, or how does that all work at your department? Uh, for the most part, it's pretty similar. Uh, most people carry OC baton. The, there's a few other things, like a lot of folks will have gloves, yes, hand, obviously handcuffs. Uh, some people carry two sets, but most only carry one um, because, you know, it, it, most of these guys are standing on posts, so they're not likely to need more than one set of handcuffs. Um, and uh, let's see, um, tourniquet is another thing, uh, gloves. You know, So uh, tasers are actually a very new addition. We've only just had tasers um, implemented uh, since, the riots it was another thing you know there'd been discussion about tasers for a while um and we finally you know the department again you know we we're always worried about uh the we have we don't have one chief we have you know above him is the sergeants at arms then above him is all the members so everything i mean it's everything is agonizing to get done so uh, when a when a big event like the riot happens, it's a, a little, it's a window of opportunity to get some of these things. So tasers was on the shopping list. So we do have those now, but not everybody carries them. Um, so uh, I think it's people have some options, but for the most part, people are carrying about the same things. Um, and uh, of course, there's there are people who are specially trained who have uh, access to other less lethal things, like some of the uh, like. Uh, pepper ball guns, things like that. Extended range deployed. impact devices, beanbags, sage. Yeah, yeah. So, those again, those aren't deployed on a day-to-day basis, although we've had discussions about doing that as well because, you know, if somebody – we that dome is a magnet for crazy, so we get a lot of crazy people, and 99% of them are absolutely harmless, but you get your occasional ones that are, you know, have – you know, the voices are telling them to do something dumb. Uh, and uh, so it's good sometimes to have – something in between, um, you know, nothing and the rifle at the top of the steps. Uh, so we've had discussions about maybe implementing, you know, beanbags, things like that to give some other options. So we'll see where that goes. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that having more or less lethal options is always a plus because, uh, you know, let's face it, in today's day and age, anything you can do that gives you more options on how to deal with a threat um, is absolutely a plus to me. You know, um Obviously, you know everybody has a sidearm. Just out of curiosity, what is your department issue for the standard duty weapon? It's the Glock twenty two, forty caliber Glock. Okay. Um, now, sometimes I have to remind myself that I actually do work in a in the rural Southwest or semi rural Southwest, and I know it's more common in, in in the Western United States and probably in the South. Um, I I don't. Our department stopped issuing shotguns probably ten years ago. Um, we transitioned to rifles. Uh, we have a. You know, most departments have a basic two-two-three platform, um, and you know we we just carry them in our cars. Um, you, or if you're not a uh, somebody who's assigned 
uh, to a to a duty where you're driving a vehicle. I don't imagine um, seeing your your regular you know uniformed officers with with a rifle slung, you know, two or three point um, walking around the Capitol. Am I correct? So um, we we have uh, what's called our first responder unit. Uh, which is basically uh, the fancy way of saying the folks stationed outside the Capitol. So we try to get almost everybody, as many people as we can, trained on rifle. That is part of the uh, first responder unit because some of those posts do have uh, a rifle requirement. So, and a lot of that is Overwatch type posts um, and things like that. Uh, so uh, there are regular posts that that do require a rifle. We do have shotguns, uh, Benelli's. Uh, but that's mostly been phased out for the simple reason that uh, it's um, it's hard to get everybody off for their recalls and their trainings and things uh, because of uh, our, we always have manpower issues and and sending people off to you know semi annual training and recalls and things it, it gets challenging. So in order to pick one, uh, we settled on rifle. So there are a handful of people who still do Benelli, but. Um, we have the M4s, uh, a lot of people in the department trained on M4s at this point. Well, considering, I mean, I've always thought, since you're, you're, you're responsible for every round, you send down Rage, and if you're shooting double-out buck, I mean, you've got, what, how many pellets you got to be responsible for? Um, now, granted, you have some penetration issues, over-penetration issues with a, with a rifle cartridge, but um, it, it's a lot easier to be responsible for everything you send down range, and, and uh, Beside that, a, a day at the range shooting your rifle is a lot easier on the shoulder than a day at the range shooting the shotgun. And, and anybody who's ever done both knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know, I don't want to get, I, I certainly don't want to f- go foray into the whole Ashley Babbitt thing, but it's something I did want to bring up. Um, and, and I'm like everybody else, I'm watching this unfold. And Ted, you know this, I'm a use of force instructor, which means I teach the cadets and the, you know, the guys at their biennium, their in-service training. You know, when when the Constitution, you know, when the Supreme Court and the appellate courts have said you can use this type of force and how much and how long and et cetera and et cetera. And I've, you know, I've investigated. I'm part of a local interagency team that investigates uh, officer-involved shootings uh, and in-custody deaths. So I've investigated several dozen of those. Um, I'm thinking that whole day, you know, I was really surprised that there wasn't more deadly force used. Um, you know, for those who don't know, there, there's a concept called disparity of force. And there are circumstances under which, uh, by all means, it is 100% lawful uh, for a police officer to use deadly force against someone they know for a fact is unarmed. Um, and the reason for that is, if as long as the person, you can reasonably articulate that a person uh, presented an, an, an imminent threat of causing you or somebody else death or great bodily injury, um, it, lethal force is, is the responsible response to it, uh, to stop that. Now, with regards to disparity of force you guys were outnumbered god knows how many to one hundred thousand to one um although i did i I did have the feeling that number one um those of us with any knowledge of this know that your typical handgun cartridge is not very effective at achieving uh what we the the greatest possible result of using deadly force and that would be immediate incapacitation um and also you are going to probably going to run out of rounds pretty quickly uh, did the idea of ever having to use deadly force um, to respond to this, what's, what's going to seems like a never-ending threat uh, from thousands and thousands of people, did that ever cross your mind? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Were you thinking about that at the time? Yeah, so this is actually one of the biggest discussion points that we had um, afterwards because after something like this happens, everybody's sort of, sort of standing there and, and reassessing what they could have done differently, maybe what they should have done. 
And so I had a lot of these discussions because a lot of my officers um, would ask ask me about you know use of force. Um, so uh, yeah, it was. So the first thing I was telling the officers is you should absolutely reevaluate what you did, maybe what you should have done in in a way that you know is is sort of a how do I, how could I do better next time or what did I learn from this? But do not beat yourself up about it. All right, so. That was number one, because as, as you know, we had a couple suicides afterwards from people who, and, and I can't get into their heads, but people who probably thought they, they did wrong or they didn't do enough or something like this. I, again, I don't, I don't know why it happened, but I, what I did not want is, was for one more of those to happen. So I, I was trying to get the officers away from beating themselves up. Uh, but secondly, I, I asked the officers, did you see instances where you could have used deadly force? And they all said, absolutely, yes. And, I'm, and I said to them, all right, do you think that would have been the right call? And th- they all said, uh, probably not, because we knew <laughs> that there were probably people in that crowd that, that was armed, and it could have absolutely turned into a bloodbath. Just because you can use a certain amount of force doesn't necessarily mean you should. So, um, if, if folks, this is one of the biggest uh, points of ignorance in the country is of, of police use of force. Everybody thinks they know what police should be doing, and, and they don't. The, using force is an intensely personal decision. Uh, and, and this is something I reminded the officers is nothing has changed about use of force. Like, just because it's a riot, the rules for use of force doesn't change. It's still, ultimately, you're talking about Graham v. Connor. You have to, that's your touchstone. So the cir- all, all of the circumstances that have led up to this moment where you find yourself, those are the things that are going to feed into your decision. So what, what is your level of training? How many of them are there? Are they armed? All of these things. So, and you don't have time to sit there and debate it. You have to make a decision right then and there of what to do. What I found when I, when I first got into the fight was a group of officers trying to talk down a mob. And, I, and I'm just, my first thought is talking time is over because they're in the building. How many of our brothers and sisters did they have to go through to get to where they are now? Now, I, I, didn't, I didn't encounter the, the fighting outside. By the time I got I, the time the Capitol was breached, we were, we were trying to push them out. So I knew that there, they just went through an intense, violent battle to get into the Capitol. I knew we weren't giving it up without a fight. I know these people. So by the time they were standing in front of me, they had already committed acts of violence. The first person I walked up to, I, I put my hands on. And so that's, that, that's policing as a whole now. We've been conditioned to, be, uh, to de-escalate. We've been conditioned to be courteous, and, and justifiably so. Obviously, that is the right thing to do. But at some point, you've got to be able to flip the switch and go hands-on. And our officers, uh, you know, to their credit, really tried not to do that in, in many cases. So at, at some point, I think they needed to see one of their officials punch someone in the face before they flipped the switch and went, oh, oh, it's time to fight now. And so I actually I had a guy, the, the guy who I encountered um, who was trying to talk them down, Several days later, and this was after Brian was killed, um, I, I went over to the Capitol and, you know, just wanted to talk to the guys and see how they were doing. And I had the officer who was talking to this mob, trying to trying to talk them down, come up to me and ask if he could talk to me for a minute. And um, uh, so I said, sure. And we went into a hallway where we could have a little privacy. And he was in tears. And you could tell this guy had been through it. And this was maybe three days later. I'd have to guess two, three days later. I, I'm pretty sure he hadn't slept in that amount of time. And he started apologizing to me for having failed me and this and that because he, he, in his mind, he didn't do enough. He saw me grab the first person. He thought, 
I don't know why I didn't do that. I should have been going hands-on with him. Why was I trying to talk to him? And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I told him, first off, this ends right now. You, you, you have nothing to apologize for. You did what you were trained to do. This, you've never encountered a, a mob before, and you did what you thought was right in that moment. So you got to stop, man. And again, we're getting to these guys beating themselves up over it. And then, uh, so it, you could tell it helped him to talk to me about it and, and this and that. It was a huge weight lifted off him. And, uh, you know, he, he did what he was thought was right. He, he, faced, he stood there and faced down a mob and, and tried to talk. Um, and, uh, there, and there was definitely a lot of that going on um, because that's, that's how we normally handle these things is by trying to reason with folks. Uh, but, you know, I, I saw him a day or two later because uh, I had got to thinking, like, man, if I hadn't wandered over the Capitol and just happened to run into him, how, how would it have gone for him? So I asked him, I said, Hey man, you you clearly needed to talk to me. Would you have Would you have sought me out, or, or did I just get lucky to, to encounter you before things really went south for you? And he just kind of shrugged. I'm like, oh man, and I, you know that's that's not an isolated incident. People were really really hurting after that um, because again, you know, it, it, it just comes back to like what what's appropriate here? What's the right thing to do? It's it, it, people don't understand what a hard decision it is to find that that sweet spot in use of force and. And again, you, you, you know damn well being a use of force instructor that these are not easy questions to answer. It's uh that's that it, that's a tough call. Well and, and as you know, Graham versus Connor tells us, you know, these are tense, uncertain and rapidly evolving uh situations and that, you know, what might seem what what might later and I'm paraphrasing, what might later seem unreasonable in the peace of a judge's chambers, um was different. And and, and at the end of the day, and a law enforcement officer's uh, use of force needs to be judged from the view of a reasonable officer on scene, from his eyes, not from the security camera at a different angle that saw something different, but from his eyes. Now, please tell me when you know when you said that these guys needed to see one of their supervisors punch somebody in the face for them to get going. Please tell me that you were they were the one to 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 to, to light that green light. Oh, absolutely. Numerous times. <laughs> well, and Ted, I know that, you know, prior to ever becoming a police officer and prior to, you know, the times that we worked together, you had a, a long background in Okinawan martial arts. So I'm, I'm imagining uh, some of that came back to you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's the, the training of, um, you know, being comfortable with uh, contact, uh, you know, learning how to take a hit. I, it's funny because somebody afterwards, uh, a few days later, again, you know, you, you start encountering people and, and having funny conversations. And, it, you know, it was a day of just full of stress and adrenaline and things. And, and somebody asked me, like, hey, man, you sore? you got to be pretty sore. And I thought about it. And it was weird because we're talking a couple of days later. I hadn't really given that a whole lot of thought. And I'm like, you know, I got a couple, like, defensive bruises. Uh, other than that, it was just mostly my knuckles. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, you know, it, the, the training of going on offense, you know, it, it, there's – Something about when you put yourself on offense and, and you go on offense, uh, that puts them on defense by default. So it's it's much easier to not get hurt if you can stay on offense. And I, you know, that's uh, that's what I was trying to in, instill in the folks that I gathered up with me. It's like, hey, we're not taking one more spe- step back today. We're we're on offense now. Let's go. Get pissed off if you're not already pissed off. And and that worked out really well. Now, did you end up besides your fist? What what what? Uh less lethal tools did you end up deploying that day if any i actually didn't use anything it was just my hands i had a baton i did not have um oc spray um but uh i mean i i ate a lot of oc spray that day as well as cs um i i i I got hit with a lot of chemicals um but yeah i didn't even get out my baton um 
part of it, I just don't like having stuff in my hands. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, for some reason, it just, I never wanted to get it out. We were in such close quarters also that it was, it would have been hard to get like a full swing going. And I saw people losing their stuff too. So it was just, it, it just didn't seem the most practical tool at the time. Cause you need a little room to swing for one thing. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was, it was, it was tough to, I mean, I saw batons flying, radios flying, all this sort of thing. So, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't really, it, it was, it was a great day for, for if you needed new equipment because, uh, property, you know, I'm sure property departments, uh, property, uh, divisions are, are the same on every department where they hate parting with stuff. Um, so after the riots, it was pretty much a green light to just show up and say, Hey, I lost this, this, and this in the riot. So you could get all this new stuff. So I jokingly told the officers, Hey man, you need new stuff. Just go to property and say, Hey, I lost three pairs of pants in the riot. You know? <laughs> well, God knows uh, how many, God knows how many, you know, of your batons and, and tasers and God knows what else are, are sitting in trophy cases and some, idiots and <laughs> house somewhere but um yep. you know you guys fought for hours but at some point there was an end uh do you remember the exact moment you thought to yourself okay it's done we're safe we've taken back the capital it's time to time to kind of change the, the energy a little bit um do you remember that yeah so uh we it, it's, it was one of these things where uh the, the capital is a really odd building in that it's got it's a very it's a very confusing building so a lot of these people just sort of gravitated toward the uh, more, you know, monumental parts of the building. So, you know, the, the most people I encountered were in the rotunda. So that took the longest to clear. And then we moved downstairs to the crypt, which is basically the, 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 the area right beneath the rotunda. So another big round room. Um, uh, so um, we pushed them all out of these things. And then it was kind of a, uh, scour the building to see if there are any stragglers sort of things. So we did some of that. And, and then, then you just kind of looking for work, like, all right, what needs doing next? What needs doing next? And, uh, you know, sweeping, sweeping the building for this, that, and then, and then I'm coordinating with, with other agencies, trying to help them find their way to this, that, or the other. Um, and, uh, so even after we'd cleared the building out and, and we encountered some situations where, People, they, they, it, it didn't even end once we cleared the building out. There were two more battles I fought at doors where we were trading. Well, we ran out of chemicals. We were hitting them with fire extinguisher blasts uh, because we ran out of everything else. Um, so there were still fights, trying to, people trying to bust their way in a couple of our doors. We, after that ended, so there's just kind of a winding down of or what, what's, what's left to do, what's left to do. And once I finally realized, like, at, at some point, there was just nothing left to do. So I actually sat on a bench in the rotunda. I don't even know what time it was at this point. And I realized I hadn't called home. Um, I should do that and tell them I'm okay. Uh, and I, I called home and I, you know, I'm just sitting on a bench and all of a sudden I, I was so thirsty, ludicrously thirsty. Um, and, uh, just, you know, thought, well, I, I better call home. So I called home and I just tell my family that I was okay. My daughter says, daddy, I saw you punching people on TV. <laughs> I just, just kind of have a chuckle about that, but then it was just sit there with some of my brothers and sisters and 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 go, holy shit! <laughs> you know, you know, Ted, you you did mention uh, you know coordinating with other agencies, and I do want to give a shout out to you know all the different agencies and probably never ending list. It seems like who responded. I do want to give a special shout out to my friend Jeremy, who I've known since seventh grade. Um, it just actually retired fairly recently last year. Was a lieutenant with the Arlington County Police. I know he made his way over there that day. 
Uh, he he was at the Pentagon on on 9/11. Uh, he was at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I'm actually Ted. I'm actually starting to get a little bit of feeling right now when you just just in the last few minutes talking about taking a seat and and looking at your brothers and sisters and saying, "Holy shit!" You know, I I know that I felt um, that day. And I know that that most of us around the country who do this job, I wanted nothing more than to be there uh, alongside you. And um, it, it killed me that I couldn't be. But, you know, uh, I haven't felt this way in a long time. I've been in kind of a rush of emotion, you know, just kind of saying these words. But when did you finally get a day off? Well, yeah, it, it, it's funny because to go back to what you're saying about, like, really, you know, we had, we had people who, who couldn't get released from their, their posts. And I'm thinking, these poor bastards that are sitting on a post listening to the chaos on the radio, and they can't close their post, you know, their brothers and sisters are fighting for their lives, and they're stuck on a post. I mean, can you imagine? I, I, that would have driven me crazy to be there but not be there. Um, but, and then, again, yes, a shout-out to the – I mean, at one point I looked up, I had an ATF tactical team, and I'm like, where did these guys come from? <laughs> How did they get here uh, so quickly? And then, you know, when I when I went to clear the rotunda, I found myself with you know, all of a sudden a, a group of MPD uh, CDU officers um, fully decked out uh, with all the kit. They were as jocked up as could be, and I was like, God bless you folks. <laughs> it's glad, I'm, boy, am I glad to see you. So, yeah, man, uh, the, the, the agencies that stepped up, New Jersey, where, how did New Jersey get here so quickly? Are you kidding me? So it was the, the the response from our brothers and sisters uh, from all over was astonishing, and it really I get emotional when I talk about it because it's again it's this brotherhood that uh, it's it's hard to put into words, but the fact that they all like rushed to our aid, uh, amazing. But yeah, to go to your question um, about the day off, it was it was I, I went home I think about four a.m. that day, and then had a quick turnaround to come back, uh, but really. You know, didn't I was exhausted, but didn't sleep a ton um, because the adrenaline actually didn't fully drop for at least a week. Uh, at least a week. It was just um, I remember sitting in my basement, just drinking a cup of coffee, and uh, you know, it's January. My basement is is normally quite cold, and I was sweating because the adrenaline was still up, and I was still angry, and all this sort of thing. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to get a day off for a really long time. Um, but I go to work the next day and, um, I get a call from somebody or maybe it was a text saying, uh, and, and I was vaguely aware that an officer had, had, um, uh, gone down in, uh, he'd made his way back to the Capitol detail office and, and fallen out. So I was vaguely aware of this, but I had no idea of who it was or, or what the circumstances were or anything like that. So I get a text from a, a retired guy that used to work for me, um, saying, Hey, uh, Brian, Brian's in the hospital. Um, he, you know, he's, he had a couple strokes and I was like, strokes, Brian, no. And, and he said, then he texts me, he goes, they don't think he's going to make it. And that, I mean, I, I, I was, I was flabbergasted. I, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Are you kidding me with this? And then, you know, as the day goes on, I'm, I'm just hungry for information on what his status is. And the, the, one of the more excruciating things is, you know, they, that they were, basically keeping him plugged in until his family could arrive and say goodbye. And then we get word that they, they have unplugged him and that he's died. And then I start gathering as many people as I can to just go to Emancipation Hall in the uh, visitor center um, to just, you know, all give each other hugs. And um, then, <laughs> bizarrely enough, we get word, 
well, he's no, he's not actually dead now. Like, wait, what? And then another word, like, yeah, no, he did die. Like, oh, good Lord, could stop it, <laughs> you know? So um, at that point, you know, I, I that that was a real, real low blow. And um, I get back, and my, my captain, again, you know, he, he sees, you know, I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm distracting myself with work. A lot needs to be done. And he says to me, don't come to work tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I, I hear you, but there's too much to be done. He goes, don't come to work tomorrow. And so, and he was absolutely right. Uh, so I, he gave me that day to just not be at work and to uh, come down a little bit and just kind of take a breather and think about things and everything. And I'm, I'm quite thankful to him that he did that. But yeah, in the midst of all the chaos, he, he told me, don't come to work. So that was that was my one day for quite a while. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm glad you brought up. It's it's funny that you brought up Brian because that was literally the next thing on my on, on my list. Uh, t- talk a little about Brian Sicknick and who he was and what his what his legacy is going to be at the at the Capitol Police. Yeah, so he, uh, you know, it, it seems like one of those things that you say about people when when they die that oh yeah he was the best, but no Brian was legitimately w- one of my best officers. He was. Um, uh, I, he was one of the handful of folks that, um, were bike trained. Um, so the, the first responder unit, we, we have a decent amount of ground to carry and, you know, responding on a mountain bike is, uh, really the most efficient way to do it on capital grounds with all the barricades and things. And so he and I would, would ride around together every day. Um, you know, we were, we were friends. Uh, he was a go-to guy. Even once I got promoted and moved over to the house division, uh, if something was going on over the Capitol, he was the guy I texted to see what, what we had, you know, and, and he was just, he was the best and, um, real, real, like funny, dry sense of humor, like just great sense of humor, but, but, uh, just real low key dude. And, um, damn, I, I it's just one of those things where it's like, well, of course, you know, you, you, you only lose your best. They're the ones who put themselves in the middle of everything. And, uh, Good Lord, it just it it still boggles my mind that that uh, this happened. I mean, and then for them to say try and say that it wasn't the riot that killed him. It, it, the guy he was healthy. He was young. He was in his thirties for crying out loud. I mean, uh, it's just yeah, it, it, that that was really the toughest thing because it, it's it's no joke. I mean, he was he was my friend and he was the best. You know, Ted, uh, you you've talked a lot about you know last 20 minutes or so about the actual events of that day you talked about the fatigue you've talked about losing friends you've talked about being uh, you know approached by one of your subordinates um with doubts about himself uh you've talked about the adrenaline and not being able to come down and the lack of sleep uh, can you I, I really hope that your employer and the federal government have been uh proactive uh and given substantial and and, and sufficient attention to treating um not just the physical wounds but the lingering uh the lingering psychological and mental things that you guys are all dealing with can you talk a little bit about what what has been offered to you and what you guys do continue to offer to your staff uh to cope with i'm gonna go out on a limb and say probably more stress in one day than a lot of you guys will deal with in an entire career yeah so the department actually has been fabulous with that like immediately afterwards they they reached out um well, I, and they didn't even have to reach out in many cases. Again, we had other departments offering uh, their resources for this. We had, um, I mean, there was a flood of, of assistance as far as that goes. Um, we actually dedicated people uh, to ensuring that was happening. Uh, I made myself as available as could be just trying to do my bit, you know, and then 
you, 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 cops are terrible at looking for help. We are. We, 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 we want to suck it up and drive on, right? But so I, I kept trying to tell people, like, do, I get it. I know this. Go talk to people, whether you feel like you need it or not. And I, it was hard to find the time to do it myself. And I, I, I would tell my officers, like, listen, I, I don't know whether I need to talk to somebody or not, honestly, but I'm going to try and do it. Uh, and so trying to lead by example as far as that goes, because we <laughs> cops need to be ha- to have their hands held and <laughs> brought to talk to people because they want to be tough about it. But so I, I actually went to one that was um, uh, you could, I guess, almost call it as like a group counseling session where uh, a fellow from another agency who does peer support uh, led almost a, it, it took the form of like a debrief, but it's really an excuse for guys. And, and uh, to you know, I say guys, but obviously I mean the, the men and women to get to get together and talk talk about all the stuff they encountered, and and so there was in every conceivable way uh, resources offered and and continue to be offered. They actually um, set up uh, a uh, uh, an office, I guess you'd call it, that, that's absolutely dedicated to the wellness of the officers, and they named it after. Harry Liebengood, the officer who took his own life in the in the following days. So uh, that's going to be his legacy. Is this um, uh, com- you know further commitment to the the overall wellness of the officers? So it offers things like everything from yoga classes to therapy dogs. Um, we do have two full time therapy dogs now that'll just go around and get pet. It's a got to be a great life for them. So uh, the department has been absolutely outstanding when it comes to looking after the officers at this point. So. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely one of the uh, positives that's that's come out of it. I'm, you know, Ted, I'm I'm glad to see that um, we we as a as a as a profession have gotten a lot better uh, about being upfront with what we're what we're dealing with, and and you know, there's no more stigma. I, you know, I I met my therapist actually because he was a he was a, pro, a, a provider who was hooked up with my. My employer's employee assistance program, and I got my you know first three sessions for free. And you know, it turns out a guy I work with actually used to live right down the street from him, and I would see him on his front porch smoking when I was on my way to go to therapy. And I mentioned that to him, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I love Doctor Jim. He's great." You know, um, and so there's no, there doesn't seem to be at least among most of us, there doesn't seem to be the stigma. Um, you know, we're kind of running short on time. I do want to a couple more things I want to get to, like any police department. You know, if you're in the field, you see a lot of the same people on a regular basis, and I don't suspect that your department's any different and maybe even much more so because there are people who work, you know, every single day, or at least when, when Congress is in session, uh, they work at the building where you work. Um, now here's where we try to, we're going to tread a little bit closer on some areas that neither one of us really wants to go, but um, just tell me if there's anything you need to avoid. I'm confident that you can navigate this in your head and, you know, articulate your answer accordingly. But look, we're all aware that there are people who work on Capitol Hill whose words uh, during November, December of 2020, did it will say very little to discourage what happened or to discourage something like it. Um, likewise, uh, many of these same people have returned to work since then uh, and have really haven't changed their tunes a bit. What's it like seeing people like this every day? Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, and it, it is it is odd to see how things have almost you know, switched out since then uh, in terms of where the perceived support comes from, if you know what I mean. So, um, it, you know, it, it is frustrating, but uh, it, it's it's a little sad that we're, we're accustomed to it, you know, and it, it doesn't affect how we do our jobs. We get, you know, that, that um, politics, it, it's, it's Capitol Hill. Politics are politics. We get it. Um, you know, people say stupid things from time to time, and, and I, we just sort of look at each other and shrug and say, 
all right, well, we still got your back. You know, like <laughs> you, you say what you want, perceive us the way you want. We're, we're, we're still going to do our jobs. And that's what it boils down to is, you know, uh, <laughs> do, do we get our cola this year? You know, things like that. You know, it's, so it, it, it's, it's a frustrating part of the job, and it's just one of those facts that we've learned to, to deal with over the years. Um, and, and that's no different, honestly, than anybody else uh, in, in our profession who works uh, in, in a different setting. I think we all understand that people who, people who hate us, but you know what, I'm still going to break my neck uh, to try to, to, to keep you safe. Uh, if the need arises. Um, lastly, I really want to I, I want to ask you, have you noticed at all, have you had an opportunity to notice any kind of shift uh, in the short time that you've had this opportunity to give your inside out kind of representation of your department's response? Have you seen a shift in how you guys are perceived? Uh, I don't know. Uh, not really. Um you know, there's always that, that sort of uh, flood of thank you afterwards um, that, you know, is always nice because, again, you know, some, some folks really needed that, you know, to, to be told, like, hey, we, we appreciate what you do day in, day out. And, uh, but, you know, it, there's always sort of a, a return to equilibrium after that. So, um, you know, it, there's, there's a bit of a short memory. Uh, and, and so there, you always – Listen, people, people made up their minds about this a long time ago, and so you're always going to have people with differing perspectives on us, and, and again, we're accustomed to it. Uh, it's just there's, there's sort of a, you know, a baseline of you know, folks that support us and folks that don't. So if somebody wants to bring us a bunch of Chick-fil-A one day, hey, thanks, we, we like that. <laughs> I've always felt, you know, I usually get that thank you, thank you for your service on, when I'm waiting in line at the store for something. Uh, and, I'm you know, back in the day I was in uniform, and now they just see the, you know, they see the badge and the gun or from wearing a suit, they just see the body camera, whatever. And that's, I'd be honest with you, always made me kind of feel uncomfortable. Um, and what I always say to people is, uh, and, and I think you know me, Ted, uh, I'm not a blue line guy. I think I have probably in the 15, 16 years I've been on Facebook, I think I've probably uploaded w literally one thing with a, uh, the, that imagery on it. It's simply not my way. It's just not, I, I don't do the blue line, I don't do the Punisher, I don't do all the cliche you know, douchey law enforcement, you know, uh, stereotype stuff. I don't need you to put a blue line sign in the yard saying I support back the blue. Um, what I need and what I want, the support I want is, number one, pay your damn taxes. Uh, number two, obey the law. And, and for F's sake, if you're going to criticize this, make some sort of attempt to, to inform yourself <laughs> before you do so. But I'm glad to see that um, you've gotten some positive response I know we've gone over, ladies and gentlemen, we shoot for 45 minutes on every episode, but uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to have gone over time today because I've learned a lot. I hope you guys have learned a lot. Um, Ted, it's good to hear your voice. I know it's been a long time, um, but I, I will probably be back in the D.C. area here before too long, and one of these days I'm going to take you up on that offer to, to have a little tour. Thank you for being my guest. Uh, any parting words on your part? Yeah, man, no, it's, uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I, uh, um, I, I, I appreciate the um, uh, opportunity to, to not only talk about, like, what, what a great job my officers did. Uh, obviously, I, I, I want to make sure everyone remembers what a great guy Brian was. Uh, and so, yeah, any, any opportunity to, to, you know, talk about it. And it's, it's always helpful to vent a little bit, too. So uh, I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed my interview with United States Capitol Police Lieutenant Ted uh, Hopkins, uh, a very old friend of mine for almost 30 years. Um, as you know, hopefully, uh, if, if you don't know, 
Uh, we're not going to do seasons anymore. We're, we're shooting to get you one episode every month, usually around the first uh, first or second Tuesday or Wednesday of the month. But we're being a little bit looser and less rigid than we have been in the past. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and please tune in uh, on Pandora, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our homepage at LasCrucesToday.com. This is Andrew Lawrence of the Square Peg Podcast, coming to you from Bravo Mike Communications in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We'll see you next time.